In a moment, I'm going to read verses 17 to 31, if you'll find your way, 1 Corinthians 11. Before I launch into that, let me give some quick overview of the book of 1 Corinthians so that we get a little taste for it, all right? Um, I find myself, uh, well, it's been too long, and that's my fault, been too long since we've done the Lord's Supper. But I find that when I do that, without looking at any previous notes, I keep coming back to the same main points. And I think the reason I do that is because they are the proper points. These are the right ones. And so I want to offer four thoughts in a few moments. Um, what is 1 Corinthians? This is the Apostle Paul writing back to a church that he started on the second missionary journey. So he starts a church. He's a missionary. He starts a church, and he moves on, starts more churches. He stayed there for 18 months the first time. Now he's away. He's planning on coming back to them. But 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter that he wrote to them. We call it 1 Corinthians because it's the first one that was inspired. The previous one was not inspired by the Lord, or we would have it. But this one here is Paul is responding to two things as far as this this group of believers that he helped start that church. Two things. Number one, those of you that have ever read it, if you, if you say, I'm going to read this book this week or this month of my devotional time, what you will find is Paul is responding to a letter that they've sent him. And he's answering their questions. They had questions about marriage, divorce, widows, singleness. If an animal was killed as a sacrifice to a false god, a pagan heathen service, and this animal was sacrificed to a false god, what would, be, what would happen to a Christian? Would it be wrong for a Christian who doesn't believe in those gods to eat that meat? You say, that sounds like Romans 14, very similar. And so Paul had to answer that. That was big in their day. Can a Christian eat meat that's been offered to idols? And that gets real tricky, so he addresses and he answers that question. And they had some questions and concerns about spiritual gifts. They were out of balance on some things. They, they needed taught. And so Paul writes them this letter to help until he gets there in person to retrain them on some things. The second thing he's doing in 1 Corinthians is he is also responding to what he has heard. So here's what's happening. You've asked me some things, I'm going to answer that. But let me tell you, I'm getting some reports about you guys, and it's very disturbing. I'm very disturbed about what I have heard. You say, what has he heard? Mainly, it is this, in its various forms. I hear there are divisions among you. Could you imagine a church full, full of Christians at each other, picking parties and groups and pairing off and this group over here says, Paul, we're still with you. And this group over here is like, yeah, we've moved past Paul. We're with Apollos. And some are like, well, we're with Peter. And some are like, fooey on all of you. We're with Jesus. And just lots of division and fighting. And he's like, stop it. We're just servants of Christ. We're not worth it. But this division went a lot of it. Could you imagine? This Christian has something against this one, and it's not getting worked out. And so Paul's like, if what I'm, what I'm hearing is true, you've got problems. Here's another one. I hear there's some sexual immorality, sexual sin, and nobody's doing anything about it. And you're arrogant about it. And it's just let go. You're just letting it go. And so Paul has to address unrepentant sexual sin. Another area was lawsuits. Again, this still goes back to the division. Paul says, I'm hearing you guys are taking each other to court. Do you not have anybody spiritual in your churches that can sit down and work this out, that you have to go to an unsaved judge and let him decide your case? Are you serious? Matthew 5. Those of you been here, Matthew. <laughs> this doesn't sound like Matthew 5. They need a good dose of what Jesus... But the Gospels haven't been written yet. Probably 1 Corinthians was written before any of the Gospels, probably before Mark. And so Paul is writing to this church, and what they're getting from him is, is in print, and so they have something to work with. But another big one was that they were abusing the Lord's Supper. And one of the problems was that they would do this thing that we've labeled a love feast or an agape feast. So before they would come to church, they would have these meals. And we do this on Wednesday night. We have ours catered in for $7. Y'all be here Wednesday night. Turn your name in. We need to know how many to order. Come Wednesday night. They'll be served at 530 
Uh, but they would bring their own, and maybe it was I bring mine and you bring yours, or maybe I, we bring it and kind of do little groups of potluck, but the problem was it, was it was way out of bounds. Some were gluttonous, and maybe they had the best of food, and maybe they were wealthy and had plenty, and they're overeating and overdrinking. And another problem was that they're not sharing with some that are poor, and so some are literally going hungry after the supposed love feast that's going to feed into the Lord's Supper. And if maybe hinted at, possibly, some are only coming to get food. I hear there's food. I'll show up on those days. That's a little whacked out. You think, nobody does that. Oh, yes, I've seen it many, many times. Food? Oh, I'm coming. Well, well good to see you today. I had not seen you in forever. Um, feel free, get in there, jump in. But nevertheless... Lots of things just going on, just some real problem. What it all resulted is apparent there was just, everybody was apathetic about the Lord's Supper. All this division, and they just did it so much over and over, it just got so used to it. When it came time for the, quote, Lord's Supper, Paul's like, what you're doing isn't even the Lord's Supper. You'll see him say that in a moment. And so that's a little bit of the context of verse 17 to 31. Here we go. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 11. Long reading, uh, but let's try to get our setting for, the, for today. Paul says in verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. To start the chapter, he commends them. I gave you some traditions. You've been good about keeping those for the most part. I can brag on you in some things. What I'm getting ready to write about, I can't commend you. I can't brag about you. Why? Let this sink in. This is its own sermon. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Could you imagine what if someone in Anderson County today actually got up out of bed, got dressed, and they went to a church, and when they leave, the honest, the honest summation of their day is this. It would have been better if they didn't go to church. Can you imagine? You say, what would lead? If you only go to church to fight and get offended, or you only go to church to hear heretical teaching, yeah, it'd been better if you not even go to church. Verse 11, 17 again. In the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. What do you mean, Paul? For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. You can just sense Paul's like, what in the world? Verse 18 continues. And I believe it in part. I think I do believe these reports. For there must be factions among you. Uh-oh. I'm not preaching this, but I do want to make a quick observation. Paul says, I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. He's literally saying, sometimes divisions happen and it's because there are unsaved people or there are carnal Christians living in the church. And the way you'll know the true Christians is when this divisiveness starts, they're not in the middle of causing it. So you can recognize who's really saved and who isn't saved. So sometimes these factions are revealing Who's at the heart of it? Who keeps driving the division? Who won't get it right? Probably the unsaved are driving the majority of this. Verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You guys call it that, but that's not what you're doing. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. So today, when we're doing something symbolic at the end, and you get these two cups that will be stacked inside of each other and there'll be a, a wafer of unleavened bread if you choose to partake this morning and, and a little cup of grape juice on top of that that represents the blood of the Lord and the body of the Lord. When you get that, don't go ahead of us. We're going to wait and all go at the same time if you wouldn't mind. For verse 20 again, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. You see the two ends of the spectrum. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Is that like the main thing, going to go down to the Lord's house to get a meal? Don't you have houses to do this? Or do you despise the church of God? Notice this. When you read that phrase, church of God, do not think of a building. They didn't have church buildings for another 200 years after this. Church is people. Or do you despise the church of God, the people of God, and humiliate those who have nothing? They're over there left with nothing. Seriously, you can't include them. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. They had some serious problems. Paul says, for I delivered, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Let's cover this again. Paul's saying, I've already covered this. Let's go over it again. I received from the Lord. 
Matthew, Mark probably haven't been written yet. This would be the first recording of this event for someone who wasn't there. For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, here we go, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this, this bread, is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, we know that that was the Passover meal. He takes the bread, he prays over it, he breaks it, distributes it to the 12 apostles, even though Judas is going to betray him. And he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And they had to be really confused because that's not what's been happening for 1,500 years. Verse 25. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. God tried to make a first covenant with the nation of Israel. I'll be your God. You'll be my people if you keep my laws. If you keep my laws and you're my people, then I'll protect you and I'll provide for you. Yes, Lord, we're all in and it sounds great. One big problem with God's first covenant. It had a defect in it. You said, God's covenant had a defect. Absolutely. The defect is people. We don't keep our end of the agreement. We couldn't keep the law. So we have to have a new covenant. We call it the New Testament. Jesus says, this cup, on the night before he was betrayed, he'll die on the cross the next day. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the, the cup, here it comes. As often as you do it, doesn't say how often, but as often as you do it, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's about the Lord's death And it's a reminder we're still doing this on earth because Jesus hasn't come back yet, but we're reminding and celebrating that he will return. And so that's the gist of the meaning. Paul closes with some warning in the next five verses. Whoever therefore, so let's go ahead and start putting this into our mind. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. You don't want to do that. Let a person examine himself then. Watch these next three words. And so eat. I want to emphasize that in a a little while. Let a person examine himself then, so you're not partaking in an unworthy manner. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself, careful, This can be dangerous. Seriously, this can be dangerous. That is why many, Paul says, that's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. You say, what does that mean? I think it means that some of the Corinthians abused the Lord's Supper. If I'm not mistaken, this is kind of technical. It means some of them got weak, and some of them got ill, and some of them died. (laughs) Because they abused the Lord's Supper. No, no, tell us. It surely doesn't mean, yep, they got sick and really weak and had physical problems and some of them got so sick that they died because they kept abusing the Lord's Supper. I don't want that to happen to anyone here today. Well, I'm skipping. Hang on. And so eat. All right. Verse 31 is the last verse we'll look at. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Examine yourself if we judge ourselves truly. If you're taking notes, you want to write this down. What we think about the Lord's Supper is as important as what we do in it. What we think about in the Lord's Supper, what we think about it, what we say about it, is just as important as, I know somebody may hear that and say, you know, I don't know that I agree with that. It's more important that you do it, and, and we need to do it, and I need to be faithful, and we need to be faithful in doing this. I'm here to tell you that what you think about doing this and what you say about the Lord's Supper is just as important as the act of doing it. It is extremely important. So when we do this in a little while, what are you thinking? What are your thoughts? What are your feelings? What, what is your theology about this? If you were to trade places with me right now and you had to stand and say, okay, what is the point of the Lord's Supper? Would you know some of the things? Where would your mind go? Do you have at least one or two of these four things? I've had time to think about it this week and I want to offer four in a moment. Can we settle this? This, under these trays here, this is not some 
magical pill or some spiritual tonic that's going to wash away anyone's sins. It's not going to ward off evil and bad luck. By doing this this morning does not make you spiritual. The real question is, as you're doing it, what is your thought? What is your understanding? What's the purpose behind this? What would you say to someone? Why are you doing this? Again, what are your thoughts and your feelings? That's the key. Hey, I hope the Lord lets you experience an emotional time as it builds toward that, but I hope no one gets to the point of putting the bread in and drinking the, the cup that comes to this conclusion. Nothing happened. I didn't feel anything. That's not the point. It's what are your thoughts about this? What does it represent? This is purely symbolic. No one is going to get saved this morning by keeping the Lord's Supper. It is symbolism. So I want to give you four reasons why we do this. What should we be doing before we approach the communion table? Number one, it's a time to review the gospel. Would you join me back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? You're in chapter 11. Go back three or four pages. It's a time to review the gospel. I hope as I say that, no one in here says, is Jeff seriously going to give us a review of the gospel? I kind of already know it. Please don't ever think that. I was talking with someone Wednesday night, two or three folks, and how we are very likely, the longer we live in the Christian life, the gospel can get old hat to us. If we're not careful, we get used to it. It doesn't move us. Fight in your heart to not let the gospel get stale. Here's why. This is your story. What I'm about to tell you is your story. We're going to start talking about the Jews' story. And I'm telling you, they never got tired of hearing their story. They celebrated it for 1,500 years. And now here, it's, it's our time to look at the Lord's Supper. What does it really mean? This is a great time to review the gospel. Don't let it get stale in our hearts. Look at chapter 5, verse number 6. What you don't see and what I'm not going to take time to go back and read, this is where Paul is saying, I'm hearing these reports. You have some sexual immorality, such of a bad kind that the pagan world does not even put up with it. And it's going on in the church and everybody knows that it's happening and no one's dealing with it. And apparently, I'm reading between the lines, I think this is probably what's happening. Paul's going to say you have an arrogance toward this. I think the arrogance, I can't be sure, but I think the arrogance is this. What about this sin? Well, we are a gracious people. So, so we're just going to overlook God's grace. Yes, we know that this guy is having sexual relations with his father's wife, so apparently his stepmother. Yes, he's having sexual relations with her. We're, not going to, we're just grace. Can I tell you something? Not dealing with sin is not graciousness. That's not graciousness. That's inviting sin to just grow rampantly. Just letting it slide, that's not the answer, and that's what they were doing. Verse number six, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? If we have a lump of dough and it has no leaven, no yeast, no fermentation in it, but we take just a little piece of fermented dough or dough with yeast in it and just put it right in there, give it a little time, and that leaven is going to take over the whole lump. It will permeate. And what, Christ, what, what Paul is saying is, if you let sin stay in the church unchecked, it's not going to go away, it's going to permeate. Back in verse 1 and 2, he says, that person needs to be plucked out of the body. They need to be removed out of the body. Like literally, you're no longer a member here. And when you're ready to get right with God, then we can talk. But you're being taken out. Why? Because we don't want your sin to be associated. It's not okay. Verse 6 again. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven. Leaven represents sin in this analogy. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Hey, Corinthians, you that are saved, you really are without sin. So why are you letting sin in the church? Well, he says he's a Christian, but he's living very clearly as if he's not a Christian. So take him out. Turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And maybe as you do that, he'll wake up, man, I need to get saved. Or if he is a Christian, he'll be brought to repentance as he realizes my action is not acceptable. Verse 7 again. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. How are we unleavened? How do we not have sin? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, not with the old sin, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Celebrate the festival. The grace of God does not mean that I can just sin all, the, all that I want. The grace of God in forgiving me of my sin makes me want to live without sin. And because we have been purified through Christ, look at the end of verse 7. Look at the last sentence. For Christ, 
Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. When Jesus died on the cross, it literally was at the exact time of the Passover. And I don't mean just the week. I mean the Passover day. Apparently at that time, depending where they lived and which part of Judaism they observed, some of them killed a lamb and had a feast on the night before like Jesus and his disciples, but some had theirs on the next day. And so literally as Christ is dying outside the city of Jerusalem, lambs are being slaughtered by the priests because it was Passover week and God ordained it and worked all the details out where Christ died exactly at Passover time. He's hanging on a cross exactly at Passover time. What's the point? Let's review. We're reviewing the gospel. Passover was a Jewish feast that commemorated when God miraculously delivered the nation of Israel from Egypt where they were in bondage of slavery for 400 years. God promised a deliverer, raised up a deliverer, we call him Moses, and through God's power, God broke the bondage of Egypt and let the nation of Israel go free. They were free from slavery. The key thought here is after 400 years, this generation in Moses' time, all they knew was slavery. It's not like they were free, got captured and taken in. They were born in slavery. That's all they knew. And so God raises up Moses and he warns Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt. And you know that God put 10 plagues on the nation of Egypt. And he kept judging them and judging them. And this was devastating. The land, the cattle, the vegetation, the people. It was killing their economy. But Pharaoh was stubborn and he would not let the Jews go. And finally, the tenth plague took place. The tenth plague, God said, on this date, in the nighttime, a death angel is going to come over the land of Egypt. And every firstborn in those families and the firstborn of the animals will all be killed in one night. And I want you to think about that. If that were to happen in the United States, all of the firstborn died tonight. So from Sunday night, just go with me, Sunday night till Monday morning, all of the firstborn in the United States died. Raise your hand if you're firstborn. Would you raise your hand? You're firstborn, hold them up high. Hold them up high. Look, we would be without all of you folks. Be lots and lots, millions and millions, 50, 60, 70, 80 million funerals would have to be held over the next. This is what happened in the nation of Egypt, and that's what broke them. But God made a law. Moses tell the children of Israel that if they'll take a lamb a, without blemish, one year old, kill it, and you're going to roast its body and eat it, but you're going to take its blood and you're going to put its blood over the doorpost and on the side of the doorpost. If you'll go into that house, then when the death angel comes, he will pass over, and that's where they get the word. He's going to just skip, pass over your house. He'll not kill the firstborn. So all your people need to get in that house that has this lamb's blood on the top and on the side. Listen, here's what's happening. You have to go under the blood, you have to go through the blood, and you're going to stay in there, and then you're going to be protected. And along comes Paul and says Jesus is our Passover lamb like those many many lambs were the Passover lambs for the nation of Israel on that night what's Paul talking about Jesus is our lamb you have to go under his blood you go through his blood once you do you are spared of the judgment against sin so here's the gospel let me give it to you in two minutes this is your story, Christian. We've all sinned against the holy God. Why? All of us have sinned. We were literally born into it. We're born in slavery to sin. Why is it that not just not one of us has been able to live thus far without sinning? We have all sinned. Most of us have taken the Lord's name in vain at some point in our life. None of us have ever had one day where we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We've all of us have had a time in our life where we love other things more than God. All of us have dishonored our parents. All of us have had unwarranted, unrighteous anger toward people. All of us have told lies. Most all of us have been lustful toward people. All of us have coveted things that are not ours to have. Most of us have stolen things at some point in our life. We are all sinners. Why? Just born in it, reared in it. It's the only life we knew. We've never known one day where we were not sinners. Problem. God is holy. God will not let sin into heaven. Furthermore, God is a just God. He can't just let our sin slide and not deal with it. He must punish sin. And we know that God's standard punishment is the same for everyone. Death for sin. Three kinds of death the Bible talks about. We're born spiritually dead. 
Death means separated. We're born in this world, a slave to sin, and separate from God, separated from God. So you, didn't, you weren't born a Christian. You're born in this world without a relationship with God, apart from God. And we will all die physically. Our soul and our spirit will separate from our body. I say it over and over. You don't know anybody 150 years old. You don't know anyone 130 years old. You don't know anyone 120 years old. Why? None of us will live to be 120 in this version of these bodies. Why? Because physical death is guaranteed. We are going to die. It's a judgment for our sin. But the worst of all is this eternal death receiving the wrath of God against our sin. We're all born spiritually separated from God with a body that is dying and then we're standing under condemnation of eternal wrath and punishment in hell that we've earned because of our sin nature. But here's the gospel. God loves us so much that he gave his son to die on a cross and he took our death. And then God says on top of that, because he took all of your sin and he paid for all of your sin, if you will truly put your faith and trust in Christ, in fact, I'll say it this way, God made a promise, all who will put their faith and trust in Jesus' blood on the cross to wash away their sins, his death on the cross to take care of all the punishment and the wrath of God for their sin, all who will put their faith and trust in that will be forgiven. They will not have this eternal wrath of God. But here's the thing. It's not just all who will do this. There is a warning. Only those who have trusted Jesus Christ will receive forgiveness of sins. Only those. You say, what about things I haven't even done yet? The Bible says in 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Communion is a wonderful time to review the gospel. And Passover is symbolic of the gospel Look again at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24. We're going to notice a second thought. What is the Lord's Supper about? It's a time to remember our Savior. Very simple. It's a time to remember. In fact, we're going to pick out one thing. This would be the main thing that the Lord's Supper is about. Verse number 24. Paul says that he had received from the Lord this message. And when Jesus had given thanks, he broke it, the bread, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Watch what he says here. This is a, an astounding statement that no doubt blew their minds on this night. This is my body. Point, talking about this bread that's been broken. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup of the new covenant is my blood. Do this. They've been doing this all their life. Let's just suppose Peter's 30 years old. Let's say John is 21, 22 years old. They've never known a year in their life where they wouldn't have taken Passover. Now here comes Jesus on this night and says, this cup after supper, this cup is the new covenant. My blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All you've known is this bread and this cup and that lamb that you eat and you roast. It's, it's pointing back to Passover. I'm changing it all tonight. You are literally on the cusp of the greatest event in the history of the world. Tonight it changes. It is no more just looking back to what God did for Israel. Tonight it is looking forward to what I will do tomorrow morning. It'll be the greatest thing in the history of the world. I want you to always remember my death. We don't like to think how our loved ones die. Jesus says, I want you to remember my death. I want you to celebrate my death because my death is what's going to pay for all of your sins. It's the key. It is the central event. Remember me. What is the Lord's Supper? It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to preach on the cross today. That would take too long. It's not technically the point. And by the way, the New Testament does not lend itself to the gore. It just says they took him out in one or two places, very simple, and they crucified him, and it moves on. But I want you to go in your mind's eye just for a moment. Would you go there just for a moment? I want you to picture a man, 32, 33 years old, darker skin, dark hair. He's Jewish. He's God in the flesh, never has sinned. But he literally, I know this are beams and boards and lumber from a tree, but he is nailed to a tree. And I want you to picture him. He has open wounds all over his body. I'm sure some of them are still running and dripping, and some are no doubt starting to clot and starting to get, but then he moves and it splits them back open. And literally as he's on this cross, there will be a pool of blood over him. I want you to picture him. Picture this person in your mind. We're not being idolatrous. 
okay? So we're not harming, you know, make no graven image. I believe we should not even make mental images of God the Father, but we're picturing what the Lord Jesus Christ would have been. I, I, his, his face, his head is swollen. His back looks like meat that has been lashed and striped. Face swollen, perhaps eyes shut, perhaps a tooth or two at least loosened, perhaps knocked out, and you think, that looks kind of ridiculous. I don't, I don't want to think of a tooth. That's probably the situation that we're looking at. A crown of thorns that is just really gushing the blood. I mean, it is a bloody mess. That's what's happening. I want to propose to you that that scene is the greatest example of the glory of God that we have in all the world. You say, what? Now, that's horrible. How, how, how can these Romans, that, that is nasty, that is sick. And to make them suffer. I want, as this man in your mind, I want you to picture as he's gasping for air. For us. That's the greatest example of the glory of God. I'll propose to you that it is the, the greatest example of insight into the attributes of God. If you've ever thought, hey, preacher, I want to know what God is really like. I don't want everybody else's version of it. I want to know what is God really like. Then go to the cross and look at the cross and you'll see what God is like. Can't preach each of these, but let me throw these out. You say, what is God like? If you study the cross, here's what you'll find. The sovereignty of God. Jeff, what do you mean? Every detail of what's happening is not just known by God in eternity past. Every detail is foreordained, predestined, planned, and executed by God. Literally, where it will happen, how it will happen, who will carry it out. The thorns are part of the plan. The spikes are part of the plan. The, the spear in the side is part of the plan. The spitting, the slapping, the scourging, the carrying of the cross, the shame, the mocking, the whole thing. It is all part of the plan. The sovereignty of God. Notice the holiness of God. Lord, why is this happening? Can't you just let us go to heaven? I know you want people to go to heaven. Can't you just let us in? God cannot. He has to deal with sin. It has to be taken out of the way. What you're seeing here on the cross is the justice of God. Pay attention. The justice of God. See, we can't see the worst part of the cross. What we see are some things that I just described. The worst part of the cross is all of our sin and all the sins of the history of humanity placed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and God the Father is judging His Son. And so what that tells me is that this is happening to the Son of God. Look how much God hates sin. And this tells me this. If God the Father would judge His Son in this way, if we can see this external things that's given us a glimpse, just a glimpse of the worst part of the cross, which is spiritual. But if God would do this to His Son, what do you think He would do to a person here today that decides, I've heard about Jesus dying on the cross. I'm going to reject it. I'm going to try to get to heaven on my own. You are spitting in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think God will let you slide see some people think I don't believe that God will actually send people to hell if he would do this to his son on the cross you better believe that he would judge a rejecter in hell we see the love of God God so loved that he gave somebody here this morning I don't know who you are I guarantee you're sitting here someone this morning has maybe right now you're having this thought or you've recently thought this nobody loves me you're really convinced of it. That one's nice, and that one has to be. They're related to me. But you really think, nobody loves me. Can I tell you something? That's a lie. That's a lie we tell ourselves. That's a lie of the enemy. If we would ever understand this, somebody has already died for you. Somebody gave his son to die for you. The person that if anyone was ever going to die for you, you would want to die for you, has already died. They gave their earthly life for yours. There is no better way. How could I show someone that I really love them more than anything? To die for a person is the greatest example of love. The Lord has done that. What do I see when I look at the cross? I see the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. I see the self-control of God. God is not some fitful person. As they're doing this to the Lord, he has full power to retaliate. He just keeps letting it happen. I, I hear Christ praying to God the Father. I don't know the dynamic. All I know is he's saying Father over and over, Father, forgive them. They know, the, know not what they do. I know 
know that he tells Peter the night before, why are you trying to defend me with your little sword? Put it away. Do you not know that I could call 12 legions of angels and they'd be here to release me at any moment? This is the plan of God. Get off of your plan. Get onto my plan. I could call 60 to 70,000 angels in a moment. Listen to me. One angel would do the job. One angel. One angel killed 185,000 soldiers in the Old Testament. I'll guarantee you they're standing there ready. What is going on in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ? Like, you just stand down, guys. Let me do the plan, what we've, what we've scheduled in eternity past. Father, hold back. I'm going to carry this all the way through. You go ahead and judge all the sin on me. I'm ready for it today. This is why I came. This is why I came. Jesus says, remember me. Don't forget me. Remember me. He's honest. Guys, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, and I'm going to die this way, and those people are going to do it. He says, I'm going to come back. He's going to come back. I see the omnipotence of God, the infinite power of God represented on the cross. Why? Tens of thousands of people die every day, and the world rarely changes. But when this man died on the cross, he paid for a whole humanity's sin. Third thought this morning. So it's about... Christ. So Jeff, as I take this wafer of bread and drink this cup, be remembering the Lord Jesus Christ. Be reviewing the gospel. We've sinned. Our salvation is in him. He's our Passover lamb. If we apply his blood spiritually to our sin, it literally washes it away. Number three, the Lord's Supper is a time to maintain our unity. Would you go with me? Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, very important. They'll be on the screen, but maybe you want to follow along in your Bible with me. Ephesians chapter 2, what is the Lord's Supper? What is this occasion? It is a time to maintain our unity. Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read a little lengthy section here, about 9 or 10 verses. Look at verse number 11. Ephesians 2. We're talking about it's a time... If we do anything at the Lord's Supper, we need to review the gospel, celebrate it again. We need to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we need to really be eager to maintain our unity. Verse 11 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, it's us, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. That means the Jews call us this. Then they were the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, hey Gentiles, remember that you were at that time separated, note that word, from Christ, alienated, remember that word, you were separated, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and remember this word, strangers, you were separated, alienated, strangers to the covenants of promise, they're not yours, having no hope, separated, alienated, strangers, no hope, and without God. Remember earlier I said spiritual death, we're born in this world apart from God, not with the relationship with God. Without God in the world, verse 13. But now, you Ephesian Christians, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been, note these words, brought near, see the opposite, brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, how can we have peace with God? Christ is our Passover lamb. He himself is our peace who has made us both one, Jews and Gentiles. Uh-oh, he's made us. He has made us both one and has broken down, broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. There was hostility. He broke it down. We were far away. We've been brought near now. How? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances so the Old Testament has these laws and ordinances that were to separate the Jews from the Gentiles. And what Paul is saying is the Lord Jesus Christ has broken down that wall and abolished those separate, separating ordinances. Why? That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile to be brought to peace and harmony. And might, why did Christ do this? And might reconcile us both to God, Jews and Gentiles, in one body. How? Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off, that's us, and peace to those who were near, that was the Jews. Verse 18 is a great verse, you see the Trinity here. For through him, Jesus, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit, through the Holy Spirit, to the Father. That's what it's all about. Access, relationship with the Father, through the Holy Spirit, by the work of Christ, Jews and Gentiles, 
Still Jews and Gentiles, verse 19. So then, he's talking to Gentiles, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're not on the outside looking in anymore. You've been, how? By the cross of Christ. Flip the page, chapter 4, very quickly. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. Paul's in prison when he's writing. He says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you, to walk, so every Christian here this morning, we're going to be doing the Lord's Supper here. Let's get this in our minds. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in a manner worthy, fitting, in a match of this. You say, I'm a Christian. Jesus is my Lord. Then walk in a manner worthy of it. What would that look like? Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, less of you, more of him, more of others. All humility, gentleness, with patience. That means enduring difficult situations, enduring difficult people. Notice he even says, bearing with one another, bearing with one another. Eager to maintain, not just, hey, be willing to work with folks. No, fight for it. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? There is one body, one Spirit. There's only one true body. It's not Grace View Church. We're just a local assembly of the one body. It's just not those born living in 2019. It's those in the 1500s and the 900s and the 600s and those that are going to be in the future. There's one body, one spirit, one Holy Spirit connecting us all just as you were called to the one hope. Hey, where are you going when you die? I'm going to heaven. Where are you going? I'm going to heaven. Hey, how are you getting there? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Me too. Who's your heavenly father? Jehovah God, Yahweh God. Me too. What are you talking about? This is awesome. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, that's Jesus, one faith. You heard my call for the confession by grace alone, by, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. You say, water baptism? No, it's the being placed into the body spiritually that God did. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. If you're taking notes, hang with us here. All, so this is a key thought this morning. All who put their faith in Jesus Christ are one body. All who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Everybody here this morning that has put their faith in Christ is one body. So take a moment, everybody look around, look across. So you folks over here, look way over there, and you folks over here, look way over there. We're all one body. If you're a Christian, now there's probably some unsaved folks among us. They would not be part of this body. They can be if they'll believe in Jesus. You say, I know I'm a Christian, I think most of the folks here this morning are Christian. We're all one body. We do not gather each week and try to fabricate unity. We are called to be eager to celebrate and fight to defend and to maintain our unity. And if there's any place in this world where cultural, social differences are laid aside, it is literally at church. This is a key thing in the Lord's Supper. So I want to propose to you this morning, let me develop this just for a moment that particularly at communion is a time for the body to reset their brain. This is a time for us to recenter our thinking. What's this? You, Jeff, you start off by saying what we say, what we think about the Lord's Supper is just as important as what we do in it. We're ready to do it. Get our mind right. We're all one body in Christ. We live in a world, I know you live in the same world I do, and this world constantly is trying to press us into its mold, into its value system, into its way of thinking. And on Communion Sunday, we do it every week when we come to church, but particularly on communion is a time that we need to stop and say, you know what, I'm getting too caught up in the way the world thinks. I'm buying into the lie. I'm stopping it. I'm putting a stop to it. I'm going to get back into the view that God has for us. I'm going to get back into the true view of things, the long view of things, the eternal view of things. I want to know how God really says we're one body. You say, Jeff, what is this lie that the world tries to press us into? Here's how it goes. I'll give, let me give you a few examples. We live in a, you know this. I could say this if our third graders were in here because it's just true. We live in a sex-saturated, sex-crazed society. Crazy with it. And the world is trying to press all of us into this mold and way of thinking. And here's the thought. If somebody has a certain type of appearance, they're more desirable. And because they're more desirable, 
they're better. They're elevated. They're above us. They've got the power. They're the beautiful people. They're the attractive people. Maybe in their face or their figure, like, these, these are the great people. And people walk around like, worshiping these folks. And here's the worst part of all. That happens long enough, they start buying the lie. I've, yeah, everybody notice I'm, I'm the stuff in every room I walk in. I, I look this way. I must be, I think I am better than everybody else. Listen, if that is you, get down off your high horse. If you're a Christian, you're just part of the body. See, the world is lying to you. It's trying to make you think that you're above everyone else. God gave us beauty to be enjoyed, but not to be idolized, and certainly not to be an occasion of self-worship. And just because someone looks attractive does not mean that they have bought into the lie, but whether you look up to others or you're tempted to think too highly of yourself, just stop it. It's a wrong view. Another view is this. Here's another wrong thought. Intellect. Money. We do the same thing. Our society wrongly elevates people that have a discerning mind, a creative mind, uh, um, a hard-working mind, someone who has a perceptive mind, and, and they, can, they can see right through things. They see things as they are. Here's where it usually comes out. Watch this. They can articulate things well. They speak well. Maybe they have a quick tongue or even a sharp tongue or a smooth tongue, and they can sell everyone on whatever they need to, and we just elevate that person. Look, they're just better than us, and they start buying the lie. Look, my personality, my quit thinking, I'm smarter than everyone else. I think I really am up here. They apparently treat me that way, and so that's a lie. That is, there's very much a lie. Another group is in our authority. Parents can get bought up into it. Parents tell their children what to do, and you can start thinking, I'm above them in the whole scheme of things. Or employers, supervisors, managers, owners can start thinking, I am able to tell people what to do. They have to do what I say. I am above them. I'm a more valuable person. That's a lie. That's a lie. That stops in here. We don't do that in here. What's taking place? We defeat the deception. All of those are forgetting grace because watch, when God pours grace out on someone and they have an appearance that is better than others or they're given an intellect or an ability to speak or they're given authority over other people and earthly authority, that does not make them a better person. That is just a very temporary, you gotta, you gotta remember what I'm telling you, it is a very temporary distinction. It's just for a little while, just in this life. And that's what the Corinthians were having a problem with. They were keeping, they were making grades and ranks and levels and classes of people, and they were in the wrong. I can't tell you what eternity is going to be like fully. You say, Jeff, do you think some people are going to be over others in eternity? Yes, they will. But we're going to be aware of grace, and it's not going to lead to anybody being haughty like it happens so often here. Y'all do realize, right? This 18, 19-year-old girl that was baptized this morning, she may be over all of us in the kingdom. The little seven-year-old girl, she may be over all of us. That little six-year-old boy whose mind was just dancing all around, he may be the most powerful person when we get to heaven among us. Careful how you treat people. The person that you look down to around here may be the, the most powerful person. You say, well, they don't look like much. They don't have much. They can't talk that well. Be careful. They may be being faithful with what they've been given. It stops here. I'll read a quick paragraph, and then we'll go to our last point. At this table, I mean it, there is no parent and child. No, my child's here today. Not at this table. There's no parent and child. There's no employer, employee. No, my boss is in the house. Not in here. He's not your boss. She's not your employer. At this table, there's one body. There is no attractive. No attractive people are going to take the Lord's Supper this morning. No less attractive people are taking the Lord's Supper. No rich people are taking the Lord's Supper today. No poor people are taking the Lord's Supper. No white folks are going to get in on it today. No black people, no Hispanic, no Asian-descended people are going to get in on this. No biracial people are going to be taking the Lord's Supper today. No intelligent people, no slower folks, no old, no young, no Jews or Gentiles are in the house today when we... Partake of the Lord's Supper in a few moments. We're one body. We literally are laying aside our differences. We're celebrating our unity. There is only one body at the Lord's Supper. That's very important. You better get that in your mind. 
And then lastly, what are we doing? We're reviewing the gospel. We're remembering Christ. We're maintaining the unity. Man, that's, that's another part of my one body here. They are my body. And then lastly, look at verse 27. We'll find there's a time. It's a time to inspect our purity. You knew I would end here. The Lord's Supper is a time to inspect our, our purity. Paul writes, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and the, drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment. Don't do that. What is this verse 27? Whoever therefore eats or eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What is that? MacArthur offers the following. This is not a direct quote. This is a summation of some ideas he had. An unworthy manner may be one or really any and all of the following. It is partake of this ritualistically. Say, Jeff, we don't have a problem with that because you never let us take the Lord's Supper. Okay. What if we did it once a week? What if we did it once a month? What if we did it four times a year? Don't ever do this ritualistically. What it means, don't just go through the motions in a moment. You say, well, I'm kind of nervous. I don't want these to happen to me. I understand I'm the same way. But I don't want to put all of that on. Just saying, don't take it indifferently, flippantly. Don't just go through the motions. Don't just do it as a ritual. What are you thinking? What are your words? What is your theology on what we're looking at? He also writes that it can mean to partake with a spirit of bitterness. Check yourself as we're talking. A spirit of bitterness or a spirit of unforgiveness towards someone. Don't partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Is there a root of bitterness toward God or toward someone? Do you right now have a spirit of unforgiveness? I just don't want to forgive them. A third is this, a little different. To take in an unworthy manner can mean to cling to one's sin with an unrepentant heart I see the sin I'm not going to give it up I want to protect it can I take of the Lord's Supper you're on dangerous ground so as we head down the home stretch this morning let me say this you don't have to be a member of Grace View to partake we do what's called open communion some churches would have a closed communion only members we don't do that but I will say this the Lord's Supper is only for Christians only people who've put their faith and trust in Christ. Be honest. If you don't have a time, well, I kind of think I've always believed in God. If that's what you're thinking in your head, do not do this today. Get saved. Put your faith and trust in Christ. This is only for Christians, and I'm going to add to that. It is only for Christians who are in good standing with the Lord and his people. I'm not saying perfect, but I'm saying things are good between you and the Lord, and you don't have aught against your brother or sister in Christ. To the best of your ability, someone may have something against you, but you are not reciprocating that. You are not keeping that against them. Don't cling to sin. This is for Christians. Why is that so important? Because, guys, I can't think of what this is. This is a celebration of Jesus' death on a cross to pay for sins. I can't imagine if there's an unsaved person this morning, unless you wrongly think that you're going to get salvation by taking this bread and this cup, that's very wrong thinking. Otherwise, I can't imagine why in the world you would want to take part in something that celebrates, is a ceremony for, and symbolizes the death of Jesus for sin when you've not gotten in on it. Why would you do that? That is so inappropriate. C could you imagine in May, the month of May, Clemson, they're having their graduation. Thousands of kids probably going across. Could you imagine me jumping up on the stage? Hey, I want one of those. Did you, did you graduate? Oh, no, I've never taken a class here. Uh, in fact, I'm not even a real fan of your sports teams. Get off our stage. You're not a partaker of this. Get out of here. If you're not a Christian, why would you partake of that which celebrates Christ? Are you a believer? If you're not, become one. Like literally, you could do that as you're sitting there right now. God, I'm a sinner. God, I'm a sinner. I've never had a moment in my life where I've put my faith in Jesus. I receive your salvation. You could literally do, do that this morning. Guilty. Very quickly, would you look at verse 27 again. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. If we could travel back in time, I'll guarantee you no person here would go back 2,000 years and walk up to Jesus on a cross and spit in his face, slap him, punch him, start mocking, berating, belittling, laughing. You say, no, I would never do that. Every Christian, I want you to listen. If you harbor and cling to sin and then take of that which represents the payment for sin while harboring, protecting, loving your sin, then you are mocking what Jesus is doing on the cross because this is not his body and his blood, but it represents the body and blood of the Lord and you would be making a mockery of Christ. No one should do that. And if right now you're hearing this and saying, okay, Jeff, I'm listening, you've convinced me. I do have a sin issue. I have something against a brother or sister in Christ. I'm not going to take of it this morning. I'm going to let it pass. Then that's the wrong answer. I skipped a thought. I want to go back and get a note. I don't know if it was up there. Yes, look at that top thought. Notice I skipped that. Look at it. So Jeff, what is it? You remember these three got baptized a few minutes ago? Have you been baptized? You don't have to nod. Look in, in your heart. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, was there a time that you went public and announced, I am a follower of Jesus? You did that at baptism. What the Lord's Supper is, is for a Christian to say publicly again. They're not going to get up in front of everyone, but those around you will see, did you take it or not? And when you take it, what you're saying is, I am going public again. I am renewing my profession of faith. I am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not perfect, I'm not sinless, but there is not aught between me and my Lord. And as far as my heart's concerned, there is nothing between me and a brother and sister in Christ. I'm ready. I could go up to anyone here today, look them in the eye, shake their hands, hug their necks and say, I want all good in your life. I want all, I'm ready to take communion. I want all good in your life. I'm thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ on a cross. I've reviewed the gospel and I'm kind of excited about it and this represents that. I'm ready to partake of communion. But if you're not and you go ahead and partake of it, you're mocking the body of Christ. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Servers, I'll call you in a moment uh, to come forward. I want to allow us all, even the servers, a moment to really consider. So as we're contemplating, maybe someone's here this morning saying, Jeff, I want to take communion, but can, can we have a moment? Can we have just a little time? I, I, want to, I don't want to miss it. Verse 28 says to examine ourselves. If we'll judge ourselves, then God will not have to judge us. I want the Holy Spirit to help me evaluate my life. But I don't want to miss it. But if we can have just a little time, then, then, then I, want to, I, want to, I want to get right between me and the Lord. I want, to, I want to partake. If you can't do that, then I would advise you to just pass and let it go by you and not partake this morning. But let me ask you just a few, a few questions. Be as honest with yourself as you can possibly be. Do you have known sin right now? Like known sin. Your heart. Sins of the mind. Eyes. As I say the word, your eyes. Is the Holy Spirit pointing out something in your heart? Your ears. Been listening to something. Your mouth. Mouth's been just being used for the wrong things. Lies, slander, gossip, blasphemy. Do you have known sin? Another question. Anyone here, don't raise your hand. This is between you and the Lord, but I need to ask. Do you have a grudge against anyone? Do you have a grudge against another Christian? As I asked that question, was there a name that came to your mind? Who is it? You're dealing with this? You're hearing? Who is it? I hope you're like, no one's coming to my mind. Praise the Lord. But if the name came to your mind, questions, here it comes. Are you telling yourself it is righteous indignation, I have good reason? Or is it just going to be honest and say it's just personal? They offended me and I can't let it slide. I don't have the thick skin that I need. I don't, I don't live out Matthew 5 like I should. I'm holding a grudge. Can I ask this? 100 years from now, fast forward, is what they've done to you, is it going to matter in 100 years when we're in heaven? Maybe the biggest question in this line of thought, here it comes, you ready? You say, I'm offended at someone. I'm angry with someone. Here's the big one. Do they know? Have you talked to them about it? Or do you have to honestly say, no, I haven't talked to them about it. I'm just, 
I'm just letting the root of bitterness grow deeper and deeper and I'm letting anger, malice boil. I'm trying to stuff it, but it's not really working. I didn't do the biblical thing. I haven't talked to them. I'm afraid to do the biblical thing and so I just keep letting it stew inside of me. And I would offer you one of two things. Take a moment and let God know, God, I am, I am putting this at the cross. I'm going to lay down my grudge. If you have a known sin, then just go to the Lord. Claim 1 John 1, 9 in your heart. God, I'm going to lay down my guilt. God, you said if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And Lord, I'm naming it in my heart. This, God, I'm giving over to you. I claim your forgiveness. I'm confessing and seeking your forgiveness and receiving your forgiveness. Lord, I'm not going to pick it back up after communion. I'm laying it down. I'm releasing the debt against that person. Let me give you just a few seconds to do that. In a moment, I'll call our servers for you. Servers, if you would come and serve the 